Then let's get into God's word. So um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to get one to you. Uh, We're going to be in Luke's gospel this morning. It's a pretty, pretty awesome story. A little convicting, a little encouraging, good mix of, uh, of, of grace and, and um, warning. So let's, let's read this. It's Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. If you're new to the Bible, um, the New Testament is kind of the latter part of the Bible. And Luke's gospel is the third book in. So Matthew, Mark, then Luke. We're chapter 17, big letter, or big number, and then uh, the verses 11 through 19. Let me read it. Pray, and then we'll dive in. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along, this is Jesus now, between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. God, you say that your word is like food and drink to us. This morning we come hungry. And this morning we come thirsty. God, you say that your word is like a lamp to our feet and a light on our path. God, this morning we come and things feel a little dark. Things feel a little confusing, a little disorienting. We don't know up from down, left from right. We need light. God, you say that your word is a rock. We ought to build our lives upon it. Well, God, this morning we come feeling like we've been in the sand. Feeling a little shaky, feeling a little wobbly, feeling a little bit troubled, confused. And God, you say that ultimately your son is the word. The incarnate word, Jesus. And so this morning, Jesus, we come to you. We throw ourselves with this leper at your feet. We cry out with these lepers, have mercy on us. We want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. We want to see you. And we know that you are pleased to reveal yourself, to manifest your presence by way of your inspired, infallible, authoritative word. And so we pray as we open up the scriptures that you would do just that and more than I could ever even think to ask. It's in Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen. Okay, so all I'm going to do this morning... I've got five observations, five things that 
I wanted to draw out from this text and reflect on with you. Sometimes I'm going to have, uh, you know, a big intro and other things. Sometimes I'm going to have more order and structure to my thought. And we're going to take a text verse by verse, chunk by chunk. This morning, as I, as I was looking at this text, um, I just thought, you know, I, what I want to do is just bring out five observations Five things just kind of jumped out at me as I was reading and praying through this, and I wanted to give those things to you. So I'm not even going to really list them all off. You can see them on your handout if you want. Uh, remember, you can always grab the handout online if you're kind of the, the e-doc kind of person. Um, but you should have a handout there. It gives you a sense of where we're going. These observations, they stand alone, but they also kind of build on one another. Uh, I'm just going to get us right in with uh, observation number one. First observation, God reaches through the physical to touch the spiritual. So here we have these 10 lepers, just to rehash the story, these 10 lepers, they hear Jesus is in town. They cry out from a distance, have mercy on us. Jesus says, all right, listen, you go show yourself to the priest. As they get up in faith and they go, they are healed. And one returns to say, thank you. The other nine keep going on. Observation number one from this story, God reaches through the physical to touch the spiritual. Now, before I can really explain to you fully what I mean by this, I think it may be helpful for me uh, to consider with you uh, afresh or maybe for the first time for some of you what it meant to be a leper, what it even means to be a leper, what these guys were facing, what these 10 were facing uh, as we read that they were lepers, because there's some confusion, I think, as we come into our modern context and we read the, the text. Um, because for us, when we hear the word leper, we think of really one disease in particular. We think of what's been called Hansen's disease. Um, we think of perhaps those, I remember some of those pictures I'd see of like mother Teresa, you know, embracing the lepers or whatever in Calcutta and that sort of thing. We think of Hansen's disease really, but when we, um, come into the world of the scriptures. And when we look at the Greek and the Hebrew, the original languages, what we come to find is actually that this word leper here could refer to something like Hansen's disease for sure. But it also could refer to other various skin issues, none of which were pleasant, all of which were miserable. But that just clarifies one thing. But there's more that needs to be understood for us to catch what these 10 guys were facing and kind of enter into this story with them. Um, the physical stuff that a leper would deal with was perhaps the easiest part. The hardest part would be the ostracism, the, the, the being kind of removed, uh, abandoned, uh, pushed away from, you know, outside the fringes, outside the margins of society and the civilized world, losing your friends and family and even your ability to go into the temple and all these things. They were considered uh, ritually unclean. They were considered uh, physically unwell and contagious and all this. And so they could not be with other folks. That's why these people, if you notice, um, they're, they're, they're at a distance there, right? We see them. They, they, they keep their distance from Jesus, even as they're crying out for mercy, because they know we're not allowed human contact. We've been removed from uh, humanity, as it were, banished from humanity. So we read in the ancient texts of the Torah, uh, talking about, um, you know, how you should handle lepers and things like this. Uh, uh, it says this, Leviticus 13, 45 uh, through 46. The leprous person shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling will be outside the camp. So working back up what 
Moses was saying there, God was saying through Moses there in Leviticus, these guys live outside the camp. They were supposed to, from what I've been told and what I've researched, keep like a 50 pace buffer from anyone, uh, lest they, you know, spread this contagion or even the ritual uncleanness and all this. Um, we see that they were supposed to make themselves as haggard as possible. Like let their hair hang down, rip up their, they, you, you can't look normal lest someone approach you as if you are. <laughs> like you're supposed to make yourself look crazy and unclean and nasty so that everybody knows, man, I don't, I'm going to keep my distance from them. And if for some reason a human being moved with compassion or whatever decides to come near, even then you can't come in for an embrace. You've got to cry out, unclean, unclean, as if to say, get away, get away. That's where these ten are. That's why they're standing at a distance. And from there, lift up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We can't come near, but from here, we can cry out for mercy. All of this has led one commentator to write uh, the following. The social consequences of leprosy were perhaps worse than the illness itself. Leprosy was a sentence of social ostracism. The disease deprived victims not only of health, but of their names, occupations, social habits, families, fellowship, and worshiping communities. Leprosy contaminated Israel's status as a holy people. Other illnesses had to be healed, but leprosy had to be cleansed. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, speaks of the banishment of lepers as those in no way differing from a corpse. In other words, you may as well be dead. You're unclean. You're out. You have no connection with you. You may as well be dead as far as the civilized world and your family, your, your people are concerned. So this is beyond hard. This is devastatingly rough. This is what these 10 lepers are facing. And now I'm saying observation number one, that that God, um, uh, that God reaches through the physical to touch the spiritual. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean a number of things and we'll see it unfold, I think, as we go. But to, to, to start off, let me at least say this. I mean that leprosy as bad as it is, is really in some ways a, a physical parable, if you will, of, of, of a more spiritual reality. It's a physical parable of something so much worse, namely our sinfulness, our spiritual uncleanness before a holy God, uh, our, our ostracism from him and relationships. I mean, you may be, and you, you know this, you can be in relationships, you and I, and yet spiritually be ostracized. Meaning we are near one another and yet we are far apart. We don't know how to love each other well, how to meet each other across boundaries and love and, and show mercy and forgiveness. We got walls built up even when we're sleeping in the same bed sometimes. So there's this whole thing going on spiritually inside and leprosy kind of is this physical parable, if you will. God shows us in some ways what's going on in the spiritual realm by the stuff that he does in the physical. And that's not to say these guys are worse sinners than anybody else. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, and we'll, I'll show you this, but just in general, this fallen world and all the stuff that we see going on is meant to show us something is wrong. Not just with my body, not just with the politics, not just with the, the you know, the, the, the leadership at the school, but, but, but in the spiritual realm, something is wrong between us and God. And God reaches through the physical to get at that reality that we're often oblivious to. Now, God has always done this sort of thing, using the physical to get at the spiritual. And we see this in the scriptures, both uh, from a negative kind of perspective and a positive. Let me give you the negative first. And the positive is actually kind of what comes out in our text, I think, more than anything else. Uh, negatively, we could consider what I was just referring to, the idea of the fall. 
So think about this with me. Um, Adam and Eve, they, they, they rebel. There, there is a, there's a spiritual rebellion, a hardening of the heart. Sin is, yes, tangible and all this, but it's, it's something in here that fractures and breaks and turns against Creator, right? And when they fall, here's what we need to understand. It doesn't just have spiritual ramifications. There are physical ramifications. That's why the curse in Genesis 3, what does he talk about? He talks about, okay, because you turned on me, now work is going to be hard. And where fruit was coming up, thorns are going to be there. Now relationships are going to be hard. And your desire is going to be over and under and clashing. And now labor and and, and bearing fruit and multiplying with kids or whatever. It's going to be hard. Life is going to be hard and then you die. Why? Why all this physical pain and suffering and curse? Because spiritually, we stood against God. Because there's something wrong at an even deeper level in the heart of man. In our hearts. So God reaches through the physical to touch the spiritual. Because here's what he knows. We often don't care about the spiritual stuff, but if he touches the physical, suddenly we feel it. If he touches the skin, suddenly we feel it. I mean, if all we were to do was just to have a conversation, let me, let me tell you this. Every parent knows this reality. And I'll, I'll, I'll flesh that out so you can kind of see, because maybe what I'm saying right now seems up here somewhere. Let's bring it right down to what you're doing in your living room, and I know you do this. So you might... Be hanging out with your kids and you give them a, you know, a directive of some sort. Here's what I'd like to see you do. Here's what, and they disobey. They disrespect. They don't listen. Whatever it is. And you sit them down, you know, on your lap or whatever it may be. And you say, listen, when you disobey or when you disrespect me, it hurts my heart. It hurts my heart. It, 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 it in some ways uh, hurts our relationship. It's, in other words, this sort of intangible, spiritual sort of breaking that happens between you and me. And they may sit there and look at you and go, they don't feel that. They don't necessarily, depending on their age, get that just yet. They wouldn't go, breaks your heart, hurts the relationship. Okay, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But then you go, okay, listen, wait a minute. They don't feel it. They, they, don't, they don't get the gravity of disobedience and disrespect. How do we help them feel it? How do we help them feel the ugliness of, of what's going on in their hearts or in the spiritual dimension? You might say, well, here's what we do. We reach through the physical to touch the spiritual. We get at it through the physical. So you say, okay, listen. Because of this, here's what's going to happen. You know, we're going to take away TV time. We're going to take away dessert tonight. We're going to take away the play date you were looking for. Whatever it is. We touch the physical and then suddenly, no! How could it be? I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again, right? Am I the only one who's experienced this? (laughs) That's how it works. We don't get that stuff until, until it's tangible. And it awakens us up to it. We go, whoa, there's some, there's some sort of yuck involved in that because now my physical circumstances are all messed up. And so God reaches through the physical to get at the spiritual realities. Now, I said that was more negative. That's how he's going to get at the sinful realities. But we see it positively put, I think, also, especially in our text with these lepers. Because Jesus is God's answer to our physical and deeper spiritual dilemma. Jesus is the answer to what it is that we are facing, both uh, physically, tangibly, circumstantially, in, the, in, the, in an earthly sense, and also in an eternal, spiritual, deeper uh, a sense as well. Jesus is the answer. He came not just to heal the body, but to heal the soul. And as such, all the healings in the Gospels are not ends in themselves. They are parables of a greater redemption. They are pictures, if you will, of what Jesus is ultimately going to accomplish in his death and resurrection. And in the last day when he rises us up incorruptible. They're pictures of something so much more comprehensive. 
the little miracles, as awesome as they are, like Lazarus, as great as that miracle is, Lazarus is going to go on for a few more years after he's raised from the dead, and he's going to die again. So if he didn't catch that there was something deeper going on, it's not, it's not reached its, uh, its point yet for him. You're supposed to catch as Jesus reaches through the physical that he's going after the heart and he's doing something even greater than raising us physically from the dead. He's going to raise the dead inside. He's going to take the spiritually dead and bring them alive, the hard heart, and soften them. That's what he's after. He is taking spiritually deformed folks, unclean, dead, blind, lame people, and making them whole. He's taking spiritually ostracized and outcast people and bringing them home. That's what he's doing. And he gets at this reality through the physical. By reaching through the physical. He shows that he has authority to forgive yours and my sin. By showcasing that authority in the physical realm. And healing the body. There's that whole scene in the gospels right. Where he goes your sins are forgiven. He's talking to like this lame man or whatever. And I was like sins are forgiven. What do you mean this guy's crippled. And who are you to talk about sins. And he goes well hey listen. uh, What's harder to do. Say your sins are forgiven or say get up and walk. Get up and walk. In other words I have authority to forgive sin. And the way you know that I have authority in the spiritual dimension. Is because I am showcasing that authority in the physical. Healings are parables of an even greater redemption. And that's precisely what we see happening in our text. And I think that's what's really brought out in the last verse. Verse 19. Um, It might not be evident to you. I don't usually do this unless I feel like it's an important point. Um, And don't get me wrong. I don't know Greek that well. I just have good Bible software. Um, but I do know this, the, the, there's something in the original language of verse 19 that is telling towards this point that I've been making. Jesus in verse 19 says this, and he, he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well, leprous man. You're no longer leprous. Your faith has made you well. Well, the word translated made well there is in the Greek, the word sozo, which all over the place means saved. In other words, your faith has saved you. It's the word used to refer to the salvation that comes to us in Jesus Christ. So I think what Jesus is saying there is, well done, one leper. You get the point. It wasn't just about fixing your skin so you could go back home. It's about bringing you back to God. And dealing with the stuff on the inside, the leprosy that's not just on the outside, but in the heart. Your faith has saved you. This is why one commentator concludes this way. This one had been not only physically healed, but spiritually healed as well. Whereas the other nine received God's word and believed for a time, they fell short of the ultimate healing and experience of divine salvation. It's just riffing on that idea that Oh, wow. Being healed has in its fuller scope the idea of being saved. Saved from sin, saved from the leprosy that runs a lot deeper than our skin. Observation number two. And this one is really related to the first uh, in many ways. Our trials are trustworthy friends. Our trials are trustworthy friends. Friends, I wonder how many of us are facing trials, hardships, suffering right now. Um, I will tell you, as a pastor, I get a unique, perhaps, vantage point into the lives of individuals, uh, especially in this church. And it struck me, as I was considering this point, that every single person I could think of was being tried in some significant way. 
When we're all prone to act like mine's the biggest, mine's the hardest. I'm dying under the weight of this trial and I'm the only one facing it. But when you step back and you go, oh my goodness, God is trying. There are, there are trials and tribulations and hardships facing every single one of us. And I know all I have to do is even mention, you're already thinking, you probably can't, you're probably not even listening to what I'm saying because you're already thinking of it. And I am here to say on the authority of this text, our trials are trustworthy friends. They mean you good. They come in peace. Now, what do I mean by that? If it is true that the physical is in some ways a parable of the spiritual, and if it is true that spiritually speaking, we are prone to wander and prone to get off into sin and all this stuff and think we got it and we don't need God and all these things. If those two things are true, then our trials, it follows, are not enemies, but in fact friends, because suffering wakes us up to reality. Suffering wakes us up to our mortality, our dependency, our insufficiency, our need for mercy. It pushes us to ask for help where in pride we would rather not. It brings us alive to our own inadequacies. We feel tangibly and physically what's always been true of us spiritually. Namely, we we don't have what it takes and we are in trouble if left to ourselves. And trials have a way of getting into our little self-made little worlds and comforts and shaking that up so that we come alive, we come awake, and we see, wow, I need God to intervene. Our trials, therefore, are more honest than our gains and comforts and riches and successes. Uh, When all is going well, think about this with me, we're prone to congratulate ourselves we're prone to think we're self-sufficient we're pro- i mean this is sort of the 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 um the pride of youth as well right i'm sorry to keep bringing up examples with my kids but you just see this you, you see this when hey i know i've got it dad i've got it and then you let them and they fall off the chair and you're like i, I told you it wasn't going to go well i probably was not a good parent there i should have just stopped it but you know it's you got that sort of thing when you're a kid or and even us i mean this is why one of the elder qualifications is is listen don't don't put in uh the elder elder um council a guy who's a young believer because he's very quickly going to fall to uh he's going to be proud and get puffed up and he's going to fall to the same condemnation of the devil meaning when you're a young believer you kind of jump in thinking you got it I got this thing. Oh, I know what the ministry needs. I know what the city needs. It's going to be. But when you've been, when you've been weathered, when you've hit the storms, when you've been uh, through years and years of this thing, you just go, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and you just laugh at the arrogance of youth. It's so naive. This is so hard. And we can't do it if God doesn't do it. Right? So that's the sort of thing that trials and suffering and hardship, they, they, they teach us. They push against that. Our good days lean in to kiss us like Judas, if you will. The kiss of betrayal. You got this. It's good. All's going well. Everything's going to be great. You know, there's that kiss of betrayal. We kind of walk out like Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you remember Daniel. Uh, where, where is it? Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar strolling atop the, the roof of his palace. And he's looking at it. All these men. He said, man, I have it right here. I should read it to you. because it's. He says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, all is well, man. Put the robe on me. Put a grape in my mouth. Get the palm fronds going. Look what I have done. And then God just humbles him to the ground, literally, to teach him this lesson. You didn't get there on your own strength. I put you there. And you won't stay there if I don't want you there. That's a wake up call. That's a wake up call. So our riches and our comforts and our successes often lie to us. But our hard days, our trials are more honest and kind and instructive. They tell us who we really are, how we're really doing, what we really need. So these lepers, 
in our story. They've been instructed by trial. They've literally been living in the wilderness outside of society. They've they've been in it, banished from humanity outside the gate, right? And they've learned. God has awakened them through pain, no, no doubt, lots of pain and hardship. But God has awakened them to their need for mercy, to to reality. And so when they hear that Jesus is in town, they cry out. There's no pride. I mean, the guys who have it all together, there's, you know, they might say, hey, Jesus, would you, you know, if you have a little time, you know, I've got a 15 minute slot in my calendar. Could could you come over and maybe help me? They're all civilized and put together. But these guys know we are desperate. We need you to cut. We need you to help. If you don't help, it's over. Trials get you in that place. They actually press us deeper into Christ. Towards his grace. And I have a feeling we've all known this sort of thing where. um, Perhaps we're even there right now where life is going good and everything seems great. And in these times, we just kind of go lukewarm. We just kind of get complacent. The gospel loses its luster. We don't see the need really to pray. Why would I read my Bible? You know, I'm making money. I'll read the stock quotes and all that because I'm right. You know, I'm rolling the dice. I'm striking it. Rich, this is going great. (laughs) And then all of a sudden the market tanks and then you're on your face. God, help. You're woken up. And this is how I got saved. I'm pretty sure this is how everyone gets saved. We're born thinking we're awesome. We get saved when we realize we're not. And we can't do this. And it's not just how we get saved. It's actually how we continue to press in. It's how God continues to pull us in closer. So let me just tell you, if you are struggling, if you are suffering, you are not alone. And you're also not abandoned. God has not forgotten you. God is actually loving you well. And I'm with you. I feel it. We're there, right? We're there together. It's nothing new. Peter in his epistle says, why are you acting like these fiery trials and ordeals are are all surprising? This is what to expect. It's going to be hard. But God is drawing us close in the midst of it. If we'll let him. See, we see our trials, we see our sufferings, we see our hardships as closed doors, as doors just slamming in our face, one after the other. My dreams, my hopes, what I had longed for, this is horrible. But what we don't realize is that in all of those closed doors, another door is opening. And it's opening wide for deeper and deeper fellowship with the one who suffered in our place, who knows well acquainted with grief and wants to draw you near. I don't know why I'm over here and all over. Somebody, somebody told me that they're like, you've got this drama thing going on. And I guess I do. Forgive me. I'm like, I don't know. Oh, sometimes I never like, why am I in the corner right now? I don't know. Um, Okay. Our trials are trustworthy friends. That's the point I wanted to make there. Now, observation number three. Observation number three. Grace is given in the going. Grace is given in the going. Now, this is an interesting one, and I love this. I think it's amazing when you stop and you think about it um, in our text and what we'll see. And I'll bring it out for you in a moment. But I wonder if you've noticed Jesus' miracles, they don't always happen in the same way. It's great because you just can't box him in. You can't make an equation that says, here's what you do. And then you get this result because he comes at it all sorts of different ways all the time just to kind of keep us on our toes. But sometimes uh, to enact the miracle, we'll see Jesus just speaks. He just says a word and it happens like in Luke four, when he casts a demon out from that man, he says, verse 35, be silent and come out of him. And the demon just shivers back into the shadows. And all the people that saw this go down there say, what is this word? I mean, he just speaks and stuff happens. That's crazy. What is this word all about? Other times he works miracles a different way. Maybe he uses word, but he also adds to it a nice little touch. Right. So Luke uh, five 
we read of a story of another leper uh, where Jesus this time uh, actually healed him by touching him. Verse 13, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, be clean. And he was healed. But there was touch involved that time. But then, and this gets us closer to what we see in our text. There are other times. And this is crazy and we don't like this one. There are other times where Jesus will kind of issue a command. He'll say something that's not yet manifested in reality. And he's asking us to reach out towards it by faith. And as we go, as we are set in motion, his mercy will meet us. As we reach for that, as we as we try to obey, however crazy it sounds, his mercy and power meets us in that moment. And the miracle is enacted. So to give you a few examples before we get into um, these lepers here, there's the man with the withered hand in Luke six. See, I'm just taking you through Luke's gospel just so you can see even within the same gospel, all these different approaches. <laughs> Luke 6, Jesus says to this guy with a withered hand, and you got you got to put yourself there, verse 10. He says, stretch out your hand. And if you're there, you're going, um, your disciples pull him aside, right? Um, Jesus, that's the problem. He can't stretch out his hand. Like the command doesn't make any sense. I don't know if you got the memo, but he's got a withered hand. He can't stretch it out. He needs you to help him. It doesn't make any sense. How does a guy without a working hand stretch out his hand? And yet the command is issued. Stretch out your hand. And this brother says, you know what? I have no idea how that's going to work. But his voice seems authoritative. I believe he can meet me in motion. Let's go. And as he, as he attempts to stretch his hand out by faith, the hand is healed. The miracle meets him in that moment. And if he holds his hand at at his side and scoffs at Jesus, who would say such a ridiculous thing to him, what are you mocking me? And the hand just stays there. The miracle doesn't come. The power doesn't flow. To give you an Old Testament example that's perhaps even more tangible, um, I wonder if you remember the um, how the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. So the story, you know, they're brought out of Egypt and they're brought through the wilderness to the, the to the land of promise there in Canaan. And they're about to enter in. And I wonder if you remember, they have to cross the Jordan and it's flood season. And so the waters are deep and they're rushing fast. Uh, but this shouldn't be a big deal for God. He parted the Red Sea. Why not do this? And so how did they get through? Well, I'll tell you, we would expect maybe it was like the Red Sea where we're told that God brought a wind or whatever he does and just he parted the waters and they could see the dry ground as they stepped. Woo! Okay. Uh, this is good, right? We got this. But then you come to now after these years in the wilderness and they're entering, they're going to cross the Jordan. And it's not that way. It's not the same way. It's not put your foot down on dry ground. Here's what happens. He's, oh, I'll read it to you. This is um, Joshua three thirteen. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. But here's what it says. Those priests had to dip their toes in. They had to get wet. They had to go out on the water in faith before they would see God work the miracle that would stop the waters and allow the rest of the Israelites to pass over on dry ground. So sometimes God said, put your toe in the water. I ain't going to show you anything until you step out on the authority of my word and faith in it. Here's why I say grace is given in the going. Because this is precisely the sort of thing we see happening in the story with these lepers. Um, one commentator sums it up on this point. And I'll just read it to you for the sake of time. Um, he, he writes this. Jesus did not come to them or touch them. He did not even say you were cured. So all these ways we've seen to do things in the past. He told them leprous as they were to go and show themselves to the priests. The normal procedure when a leper was cured 
or I'm sorry, uh, which would have been the normal procedure when a leper was cured. The priest acted as a kind of health inspector. His job was to certify that the cure had in fact taken place. Jesus was putting their faith to the test by asking these men to act as though they had been cured. And as they obeyed, so it happened. As they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15. So I wonder if you caught it. What he's saying there. The, the Levitical law, the law in the Old Testament said, listen, when, if you've been cured or healed of leprosy, then you go present yourself to the priest and he will confirm, yes, it's been cured. Priest doesn't do any mumbo jumbo to cure you. He just validates that, okay, yes, it happened. And Jesus here says to these guys, full of boils, spots, blemishes, whatever, leprous to the core. He says, get up and go to the priest. Well, they have all this on their body. And they're thinking, okay, but the priests are going to, number one, they're going to like stone us <laughs> because we're, we're breaking the law. That's not going to be good. But number two, every, as we go, everyone's going to laugh. They're going to think we're ridiculous. But no, they don't do that. Instead, they hear Jesus' word and they say, I, I don't know how. Right now, I, I, see, I see leprosy, but I have this sense that by the time I get there, as we get up and we get going, it's going to be gone. So they move in faith on his word, and his grace meets them in the going. Now, this is hard for people like us, or at least I could say for people like me. I like to see before I step. I like to know before I go. I like to plan and get all my stuff in a row. I like to calculate the risk and make sure, you know, I know what I'm getting myself into and that I have a reasonable chance of success before I take that step and put, just dip my toes in the water or go back towards town as a leper. I, I want to know, hey, this, give me some assurance here. But our assurance, brothers and sisters, is God. In his word. It's like what we read in Hebrews 11. They went out. <laughs> because God said go. They went out. Not knowing where in the world they were going. Here we go. And it may be that some of us have that sort of thing right now. That God's trying to do in our lives. And we're going, oh, Let me just rethink it from another angle. Let me just come at it one more time. Let me just assure that I have. Some... That's not faith in God in those moments. That is faith in ourselves and our puny little intellects. And our logic and our plans. He's saying, no, let's step out into something crazy. Let's move. And a lot of times we don't see the miracle because we don't get, get in motion. Our faith doesn't move us towards obedience and dipping our toes in the Lord. So just encourage you. What is God calling you to do? Sounds risky, sounds scary. Take a step. Let's take a step. Let's watch as he meets us in the going. Observation number four. Healing is for homecoming. Healing is for homecoming. I'm going to linger on this one just a little bit um, because this was, this is maybe even the point largely of the parable itself, or not the parable, the story in our text itself. Um, healing is for homecoming. I, I think this is really brought out uh, what I'm after here is really brought out in verses 15 and 16 of our text where we read, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, I know it talks about him being a Samaritan there. I don't have time to go into that like I wish I could. I'll spare you some of those reflections. Um, but just know this, the Samaritan would be the last guy. He was the outsider of outsiders. If lepers were outsiders, a Samaritan leper would have been the outsider of outsiders. They were half-breed, despised by Jews. And Jesus here, and then, and then Luke, by bringing that note in, is especially making this point, man, sometimes it's the furthest out that are the first ones in. The gospel just shatters paradigms. And you thought, man, you don't belong in the church. You thought, man, that the, the line is drawn too, too, too heavy. I can't pass that line. And Jesus said, get in here. Get over here. But I said I wouldn't reflect on that with you. So this one returns to Jesus 
and he's at his feet. And this really kind of starts to bring out in many ways what I was getting at in the first observation as well. Uh, healing is for homecoming. The idea is this physical thing that happened has alerted him to something so much more that he needs. And he comes back to Jesus and through Jesus to God, the one who made him, loves him, created him, and has now redeemed him. Comes back home. He sees the point of the miracle and he lets it have its way with his heart. Uh, I think the beauty of this moment is best probably captured when we consider the contrast that comes out from verse 16 and verse 12, holding those two texts together. Verse 12, we remember the leper is with the others standing at a distance. I can't get close. 50 paces back, yelling out for mercy, standing at a distance. But then verse 16, where is he? He fell on his face at Jesus's feet. He breaks through the safety zone he was once required to keep as a leper. And he just throws himself down upon Christ. He's welcomed. He's cleansed. He's home. Healing is for homecoming. But, and here's where I said there's, a, there's great comfort in this text, but there's also some warning. There's also some things that will probably bring out some conviction for us. And any good sermon should both, both warm your heart and, and, and make you uncomfortable. <laughs> well, this is the point where we have to let something settle on us a little bit. They don't all come back. All, all the lepers don't come back. In fact, the great majority don't. One commentator says this gives hope to those ministers who constantly scatter the seed and don't see any much results. It's like even Jesus shot 10% right here. Oh, only one. It's like, okay, that makes me feel good. But nine of them just keep going on. They don't come back. All of them were there uh, crying out in verse 13, Master, have mercy on us. That word master is the word used only everywhere else by disciples. It's saying, you have authority. We want to follow you. you. You're master of our lives. And they're crying out, Master, have mercy on us. But was he really their master? Were they really prepared to be his disciples? Because if I'm reading the text correctly, it seems they got what they were after and then they went. They went on their way. They were gone. And I think that's the question that we need to linger on because that's what so many of us are prone to. We want God's help. We desperately maybe want God's help. But do we want him? I'm just going to let that sit there in an awkward silence for a moment. So you can imagine all that opened up to these, these brothers. When their leprosy is taken away. When they realize they've been healed. You can imagine all that they suddenly just opened up to them. All sorts of good things. I get to go embrace my family, you know, maybe that, or I get, to, maybe I can actually go get a wife and kids, or I can go sit around the table with my brothers, and, and, and I can share a meal of food and drink and laughter and dancing and feasting. I can have a lot of, I can work. Oh, I've wanted to work. I feel like my life counted for something. I can rest. Oh, I wanted to rest with my friends and enjoy life in community. Also, Imagine all the good stuff that just opened up. And it seems to me that in the midst of all of that good stuff and in the, in the display of God's grace to them, they lost sight of the God of grace who gave it to them in the first place. We got what we wanted. We're on our way. Thank you very much. One commentator notes, apparently the nine were so absorbed in their new happiness that they could not spare a thought for its source. You ever been there praying so much for this or that to happen? Open up, you know, you're on your knees. You're there. God, open up this door for, you know, a relationship or a job or a career change or finances or, or, or whatever it is. And then God gives that to you and, and, and you're gone. You're not on your knees anymore. You don't come back. 
in praise and thanks, you're, you're gone and you missed it. I, I got a very vivid picture of this. Um, reading through just my devotions through the book of Exodus. And I came to uh, the story of the golden calf. And I know we've talked about this in here before, but I've never brought this out before because I don't know if I've ever seen it. Um, but let me refresh you on this story because I want you to see. We've been prone to this from the very beginning. So here's what happens. God works this incredible redemption for the people of Israel. They're enslaved in Egypt, just being abused. And they cry out to him and he hears and he comes and he saves and he he leads them out right from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where he gives them as their king, his law. And he calls Moses up to the top of that mountain to receive the law. And while Moses is there, the people down below get angsty. They get restless. They start feeling like, hey, what happened to your boy Moses? What's, what, uh, God's abandoned us. What's the deal? And Aaron looks at it. He goes, okay, uh, well, it looks like maybe we're going to have to fend for ourselves. So let's do kind of the whole thing we see the other nations do. Let's create a God for ourselves. Let's create an idol. And so his command to the people of Israel is, hey, get all the golden jewelry and earrings and stuff that you have. Bring them to me. I got a fire going. Let's melt it down. And he fashions it into a golden calf, which sounds weird to us. But in their day was common idolatry kind of practice and worship. And he says to them, here is your God, O Israel. Now, you probably have no idea where I'm going with this, but it all is brought out by a question that I'll I'll ask now and one that I was pondering. So we're reading that that the Israelites put together all of their jewelry and all this stuff, okay, into uh, all these precious metals and things into this fire. And that's what the golden calf is fashioned from. And here was my question. Wait a minute. I thought Israel just came out from slavery, like days before. Oppressive, burdened, slavery in Egypt. Where did they get all this gold? Where did they get all this jewelry? Where did they get all this stuff that they're now fashioning an idol with for their own, you know, uh, worship? It's not like they had Amazon Prime, right? I mean, like you could just kind of get online and get some nice golden rings sent to you. And it's on your tent, you know, the, the outside of your tent the next day in the wilderness. No. Where did they get it? So that they could even make this thing. Answer. It was the spoils God graciously granted to them. During the Exodus. He told them specifically as they were on their way out, he said, listen, as you go, the Egyptians are going to want you out of there because of the the curses I'm going to bring down, the plagues I'm going to bring down. They're going to want you out of there. But as you go, I'm going to give you favor in their sight. And I want you to ask for gold and silver and jewelry and things like that. And they will give it. I want you to ask for it. So they ask for it. And God graciously gives it. And then they take it. And they use it not in worship of God, but in worship of idols. They take the spoils of his grace, the spoils of his victory and his favor upon them. And they use it not to serve and worship him, but to serve themselves. To commit adultery on him with the very stuff he gifted to them. And just so you know, he calls them to do that because that's going to be the stuff that ultimately forms the tabernacle and all of its instruments that are used for worshiping him. But we take it so often. We, we cry out for mercy like Israel. And he shows, us, he shows us mercy. And he blesses us. And he gives us things. And then we say, thank you so much. Let me build my idol and bow down. And he's saying, man, all that stuff was meant to build not idols, but a tabernacle. A house of worship. Is meant to construct something whereby your life becomes one big worship service and your gratitude and your praise rises to me. But often we take it and we run. And so the call, the call for us, Mercy Hill, 
is that we not run off with the nine, but that we return with the one. We give him thanks. We give him praise. We come with him to we come to him to plead for mercies needed. But to do we return back to him to praise for mercies received? Last observation, and this is where I'm going to close. Now, this is the shortest of them all, but I wanted I needed to say this. The Lord becomes the leper. Observation number five, the Lord becomes the leper. Um, I wonder if you noticed the way our text began there in verse 11. Luke is careful to note something, and it matters. It matters uh, uh, intently. I don't think that it matters a lot. (laughs) He says this, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, these things went down. He says, all this stuff, you see it there? All this stuff that we read about with these lepers and these healings and things happens while Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And this isn't the first time that Luke has mentioned this little detail. Luke 9.51, I'll just give you a few of them. Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke 13, 22, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And he mentions this journey towards Jerusalem again in our text. He doesn't want us to forget Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. That's an important contextual detail. And I want to say, well, why? What is Jesus going to do in Jerusalem? How does that relate to these lepers? Why do I need to know that? Luke, what's he going to do there anyways? Well, Jesus himself tells us why he's on his way to Jerusalem in Luke 18, 31 to 33. Taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. That's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And here's why that's important for our story this morning. We need to know that when Jesus heals these lepers, he's not working like some sort of a magician. He's not an illusionist. He doesn't just take some things and poof, magically makes them disappear. This isn't magic. He's not a magician. He's more like a priest. Or even better put, perhaps, a sacrifice. You see, he's not just going to uh, look at the leprosy and make it disappear. He's not going to look at the curse and just going to make it disappear. He's going to bear that stuff in himself. That's how it goes away. It's put on his body. He takes the effects of our sin. The Lord becomes the leper. That's what the cross is all about. What is it up there that's happening? But this, that he is becoming the unclean thing. That he is becoming the one ostracized from his people, no doubt, but from his holy father as well. That he is the one banished from humanity. That he is the one considered no better than a corpse. He's taking the effect of the curse on himself so that when he rises up from the dead three days later, the fullness of what was pictured in parable form, you could say back with this leper, would be uh, revealed and unveiled and offered to us. If if he's not on his way to Jerusalem, then this is just a magic trick and this leper eventually dies and goes to hell in, in his sin. But if he's on his way to Jerusalem, then this leper gets onto that train and he follows with the Savior there. And this leper finds not only is he healed here and now, but even when he dies, as we all will, unless the Lord returns first, even when he dies, 
He will rise in the sun, counted spotless, unblemished, righteous before a holy God because of what Jesus did for him at Calvary in Jerusalem. He's not just a magician. He's a sacrifice. And he's your sacrifice. He's my sacrifice. We lay hold of him. So again, the call comes out. Don't just receive the spoils of his victory and his grace and run off. Return with the one. Give him thanks and praise. Come home. Let's pray. I pray for the wandering hearts in this room. God, I pray for those that have taken the spoils of your victory and your grace and used it to fashion idols for themselves. I pray for myself. I confess, Lord, that I often get so excited about your gifts that I neglect the source. Jesus, as a church, we want to return right now with the one. I don't. We don't want to run off with the nine. They will inevitably end up dissatisfied and broken. Even if they have healed skin, their inside will not be right. So we come back to you now, Lord. Declare that you are our first love. And everything we have. Because of you. We love you. We worship you. It's your name I pray. Amen.